Welcome to Jat Chat presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak, an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and your host for today. The purpose of today's event is to provide an open forum for athletic trainers and all allied healthcare professionals to learn a little bit more about the recently published current clinical concepts entitled A Contemporary Approach to Patellofemoral Pain in Runners. Today, I'm joined by two of the manuscript's authors, Dr. Jean-Francois Esculet, leader of research and development, as well as a speaker for the running clinic. And I'm also joined by Mr. Blaise Dubois, a physiotherapist and the founder of the, runner cl- the running clinic. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kara. Hi, Kara. Nice to uh, be on the podcast with you. Thanks for the invite. So... One of the things that really came out is the usefulness and taking an approach to patellofemoral pain that's really evidence-based, but also taking that clinical uh, knowledge aspect. And what are some common or previously held perceptions around patellofemoral pain risk factors that really need to be revisited and potentially debunked? It's a good question. Um, I, I feel like as clinicians, we always try to find, you know, a cause that would be mechanical in some of our patients' problems. Um, and PFP is probably one of the main injuries for which, you know, we think the mechanics really matter. And we kind of questioned that in, in the paper where uh, we're thinking, well, maybe we should consider more the, the conversation part of it, like the subjective exam to know why that person got injured more than the mechanical side of things. And I, I know uh, from a clinical perspective, and Blaise has a lot of years of experience working with runners and runners with PFB, uh, he can he can add more to that for sure. But we tend to focus way too much on anatomy and biomechanics. Yeah, after I, I will add just that after 22 years of uh, uh, clinical experience with runners principally, um, and sorry for my horrible English, uh, I am a French guy from Quebec coming from Switzerland, and uh, uh, my English is not very good. I will try to do my best. Better than uh, my French. <laughs> good. Uh, but really, when you treat patients, when you treat runners, you realize pretty soon in your practice that they come see you because they did too much. And that's for 80% of the runners that come see you. It's most of the cause of their problem is just because they increase the volume, they increase the, the intensity, the speed, the denivelation if they are they are trail runners. And, um, and you realize that even if you look for all the, I will see picky biomechanic stuff we were looking for many years ago, uh, you won't improve your client, your patient by this type of thing. And the first thing to do is to be a coach for them, to manage the load, to manage the training, uh, to tell, okay, we need to cut off maybe a little bit the volume and the intensity, and we will go back progressively. And you realize after many years of practice that most of your success come from this mechanical uh, stress quantification, load management. One of the lines in your manuscript that really stood out to me, and I rarely do this, but I have to read this word for word because it's really powerful. The presence of a feature in a symptomatic runners could simply be a consequence of the pain and not its cause. So tell us a little bit more about how do you approach that, um, managing this 
consequence, what you're seeing and the cause? Yeah, so what we meant by that is, for example, you know, muscle strength, because as clinicians, we have a patient coming in, they have knee pain, we test their strength and we say, oh, you, you're weak from your glutes. That's a classic sentence from a clinician to someone with PFP. But then we're biased because we're assessing someone with pain. Uh, and what the literature suggests right now is that that weakness might be a result of pain rather than the cause of pain. So it's just about how you interpret what you find in your clinical exam, um, telling that person, you know, okay, so your muscles are a bit weaker, but it's probably the result of pain. Maybe your brain is just telling you not to push as hard as you would usually. Um, we're still going to give you exercises, but the way we interpret that is that's not why you got injured because we tend to associate a finding in our clinical exam with that being the cause of it. And I'll extend that a bit further with the running mechanics, where, for example, we see someone with their knees going in when they run, they have increased dynamic valgus, and we think, oh, that's why you got injured. But we don't know how those people were running before. Maybe they didn't have it, maybe they did. And even if they did, is it actually the cause of it? We don't have that information. And we tend to extrapolate a lot. Nothing to add. <laughs> So tell me some more about how the duration of patellofemoral pain symptoms plays a role in the evaluation and treatment. It's a good question, Kara. Actually, uh, maybe that's a point that uh, during the peer review process for the paper, uh, we had to go back and forth on this one specifically because there's not there's not much evidence on you know how you should get your treatment oriented differently if it's an acute kind of pain versus a more persistent kind of pain uh, for PFP. But we do that for every other injury. You have an ankle sprain. Um, you have, you know, you need to, to take it easy for a bit. Uh, we published recently that protocol called the peace and love that maybe your, your uh, <laughs> listeners know about. Um, so you just take it easy. You need to just calm down on your training, on your loads and all that stuff. And then you reload gradually after. Um, so, when someone comes in with PFP, if it's a recent onset of PFP, they might just have overloaded their joint because they did too much too soon, like Blaise was saying earlier. And if that's the case, you don't need to change the way they run. You don't need to uh, do a bunch of things. You just need to change their training loads. And personally, I'm doing that a lot with my patients and it works well. So it's just trying to streamline the process. Uh, and if it's persistent, then you can add more. You can add the exercises. There's great evidence. There's great evidence on that. You can add running gait modifications, changes in shoes, and and all that stuff too. And when we speak about the load management, it's uh, clinically, it's the management of the symptom means that um, you tell to your patient to load depending of uh, the symptom they have when they do something. So in an acute condition, sometimes we are a little bit more. Um, we will recommend to have no pain during the activity to be sure that they don't go in a zone where they can be uh, sensitized, irritated, inflamed. And uh, in a chronic uh, condition, when you have pain since long time, for we do that for many tendinopathy, but it can be the same for PFPS, um, we can recommend to have a certain degrees of pain if this pain um, doesn't 
change on short term, the outcome means that the day after you can do the same activity that you were doing today, even if you did it with a certain degrees of pain. So we can accept uh, a certain degrees of pain uh, when they run. Uh, to give you an example, if they can run as much the day after and they don't have too much pain during the day after the run, uh, and this management of the symptom with the client, uh, like teaching them to uh, do this, um, to manage the mechanical stress according to the symptom, it's the way to progress, progress uh, to be good in the progression. Thank you. And let's talk more about these two main categories that you've described, the load and then the capacity and how they're weighed and balanced uh, against each other. So what factors into load and then what factors into capacity? Yeah, the, the load part uh, we're talking about, um, you know, what kind of activities or movements are putting more stress into the patellofemoral joint. So that, that means, uh, for example, if you're adding more distance to your running, then it's increasing load. If you're adding more speed, uh, it's also increasing the amount of compression you get in the joint. If you're doing more downhill, then you also increase the forces in the joint. So all these activities that can be related to running or even to other activities, like, uh, I don't know, if you you just run the same as usual, but you, you work in a new workplace environment and you have to go up and down the stairs all the time, you're not used to do that. So you are overloading your body and that might lead to uh, eventually... Uh, disruption of the homeostasis in the joint and then pain eventually. On the other side, the capacity is how much, uh, how, how your body is able to recover from that load that you're uh, putting on it. And that can be through sleep, uh, through your psychological state, through, um, you know, fatigue, nutrition, systemic factors. There's a bunch of things that can influence the way your body recovers. So, for example, a runner coming in the clinic, they have PFP, and I always ask them a bunch of questions. Like, have you recently increased your running volume? Have you increased your speed? Have you increased your hills and things like that? If they say no to all the questions, I will always go to the capacity side of things and ask them, okay, how, how are you sleeping? Have you been sleeping well or enough lately? Um, do you have any changes in your personal life and things like that? And you'd be surprised to see how many people actually say yes to some of these questions. And they realize, well, I didn't change anything in my training, but my body isn't able to recover from that amount of load. And usually it is able to recover, but now it can't. And that can lead to uh, that overload. So that, that's, that's the kind of concept with the balance between load and capacity. And in chronic condition, we really see the variation of the symptom a lot according to this capacity. Uh, your uh, nervous system is sensitized, you're tired, you don't sleep well, you're stressed, and really you can feel more the pain. And um, we developed a tools uh, 20 years ago at the running clinic, the mechanical stress quantification, and we realized actually that it's not just the mechanical stress quantification, but it's also the... Uh, cognitive uh, psychological stress quantification because according to the symptom you need to manage the what you do and the symptom can be in, increased by different condition like Jeff just explained uh, that is more intrinsic like uh, stress uh, etc 
How do you guys go about having these conversations with a patient, particularly on the capacity side? I think as clinicians, we've gotten really good about asking those load questions, coaching the load, but probably not so much on asking the capacity and coaching capacity. How do you have that interaction from a capacity standpoint? Uh, personally, I, I will always do my full assessment first, right? So, for example, I'll look at the way they run, I'll test their strength, and I'll do all that stuff. And and I think what's important is to tell them your findings, to kind of funnel that to the idea of, like, everything you're doing is is great in terms of, you know, your running gait is really good, your strength is good, for example, uh, your anatomy is totally fine, like, you don't have anything that could predispose you to having this kind of pain. And it seems like your training program might be, like, overall pretty good. Uh, there's no big increase in it. So I, I usually tell them, you know, I think we need to look into other factors, how your body is able to recover from your, your current training loads. And, uh, and like I said earlier, I'm, I'm asking them, you know, have you been sleeping well? Uh, and, and just trying to make them realize something instead of trying to lecture them on, you know, you should sleep more and you should do this differently and all that stuff. And most of the time, to be honest, I'll, I'll ask them a bunch of questions and I can see in their eyes that they're realizing some stuff, but maybe they don't want to tell me about it. And it's totally fine. And the goal is at least that they, they realize that there might be something there that contributes to the process. So personally, that's how I handle it. I will add, you know what? I use the mechanical stress quantification tools. It's like load management. And um, I explained to the patient that if they did like too much, they will go over the red line, the maximum capacity, and they will develop some pain during, pain after, morning stiffness, swelling, etc. And the goal is not to do nothing too, because if they do nothing, they will decrease their capacity. So they will become, I will say, weaker, less tolerant to the stress. And the goal is to be in between, between the, the line representing the minimum stress that you need to create adaptation, but not go over the red line, the maximum stress uh, that you can tolerate. And by being in this zone, you will create adaptation, increase your tolerance and become more robust. And the, the thing is that to know if you're in this zone, it's, it's the, the artistic part of, the, of my job is to try to find with the patient what make them in this line? If you have a chronic condition, uh, for sure, we, we will agree to have some pain to work on this, uh, this zone. If you have an acute condition, I will say I prefer to have no pain. If uh, someone is very tolerant to the stress, I will uh, maybe slow down his activity and his tolerance to pain because for him, like having pain is not a big deal. But some other people that are... Um, to uh, not enough tolerant to the stress, everything is like painful at eight on 10. Uh, for those people, I will maybe push it a little bit. And that's the artistic part. And that's difficult to put in, in word. In word with the patient is okay, but it's difficult to mathematize. Jeff, how can I say that? Like put formula, specific formula on that. Exactly. Yeah, that helped me. <laughs> because each one's different. Each yeah. person's zone is different. And the zone is different, but it's also different from one day to another in the mm -hmm. same person. 
So there's no way we can reach any sort of, of mathematical formula on that. I, I don't think it's possible. And uh, yeah, it, that's the artistic part, like Blaise is saying. It would at be the same fun. time. At the same time, we do that every day. So there is no at each day of of a clinics for each patient. I teach the mechanical stress quantification. So we really develop tools to be able to manage this with the patient. And uh, if we don't do this pretty well, uh, we won't have the same success with our patient for sure. So all circling back to that patient education and really making it patient-centered in the patient you have that day even. Yeah, so, absolutely. So we need to adapt, yeah. As, as you're going through, you guys do a really good job of bringing up all of these different aspects that um, have been thought in the past or continue to be thought about ways to treat patellofemoral pain syndrome. So let's get into strength, right? Strength being the biggest one of, is it vastus medialis oblicus? Is it hip abductor strength? Where does strength and increasing strength play a role in your treatment? Uh, good question. Uh, this is, um, th there's always a trendy muscle, right? Let's, <laughs> let's start by saying that. Um, so the, the vastus medialis oblicus has been, I guess, the trendy muscle for the 90s. And then came the, the gluteus medius uh, and gluteus maximus. And uh, maybe at some point it will be the popliteus. We don't know. But um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, we have pretty good evidence that giving strengthening exercises can help reduce pain and improve function. That's really clear from the, the literature on PFP. So that's a combination of quads and hip strength. Like hip includes hip abductors, hip extensors, hip external rotators. Like there's a good body of, of research on that. However, there's also, um, you know, there's a systematic review that came out in, in uh, JOSPT um, a few months back from uh, Danilo de Oliveira Silva that actually looked at the comparison between education and an exercise program. And, and their findings are quite interesting in they're saying basically that you can have the same clinical efficacy in terms of redu reducing pain and improving uh, function if you're educating your patient on appropriate load management. And you get the same efficiency and efficacy as an exercise program, which we know is working really well. So it kind of circles back to the importance of educating our patients. Yes, you can give exercises if you want, but even if your exercises are the best in the world, if you don't educate your patient on what's the, the right zone to promote adaptation and increase their tolerance, they won't, they just won't get better. So I, I think that's a key point that uh, clinicians should keep in mind. And uh, the level of pain, and we've tested it, you know, in, in a randomized controlled trial uh, that we published in 2018 in BGSM is to um, basically tell people you can go up to two out of 10 for most people, like two out of 10 during your run, max one hour after, and then no increase the day after. And if you're within that zone, then gradually you can increase your volume and then increase your speed and increase the hills as tolerated. And if we added an exercise program to that, we didn't get more benefits. We didn't get better effects as the group who only had education. Uh, 
Um, so that's a long answer, I guess, that I'm giving you for I'm kind of going back to the education part. But yes, you can give exercises, but I think uh, clinicians shouldn't lose, um, you know, the shouldn't miss out on the importance of education, even if they give out exercises. And I, I will add also that um, we have um, evidence, uh, cross-sectional evidence, that people with uh, PFP have more glute weakness, by example, but it not seems the cause of the PFP. Mm-hmm. See, uh, means that uh, maybe the pain is an inhibitor and can create cause certain weakness. But in the mind of physio, some years ago, we were convinced that one of the cause of PFP was the glute weakness. And uh, we were working the glutes to correct the cause, but it, uh, but it was probably not working in that way. It uh, means that doing strengthening works to help PFP, but it's not the cause of the problem. Maybe, Jeff, you can add something on that. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of people who will get better, um, but they're not stronger. And I'm sure some listeners will, will, you know, they will think back on some of their patients. And I certainly had some myself where, you know, you're, you're testing them and you're hoping that they will be stronger than initially, but they're not, but they're feeling better. And so it kind of questions, we should be asking ourselves that question, you know, what's the, what's the mediator of, of the progress here? Is it increased strength really, or is it something different? And sometimes we see an increase in strength. Sometimes there's no increase in strength, but the person will still feel better. So let's get to number two out of usually the three big questions. Should I change their gait, right? We've knocked off strength. What about their gait? And then I'm coming up with shoes next. <laughs> Blaise, do you want to start with the, the gate? Yeah, but uh, you speak about the, the, the paper we published in the BGSM. Um, there is a third group that we were combined education, mechanical stress quantification to gait retraining. And there is no more improvement in 20 weeks than just the load management. So, so I introduce you, uh, Jeff, so you can complete. <laughs> yeah, uh, so... Again, I do change people's gait. Like we're not saying that we don't do any of these things. Like I give exercises and I change people's gait. But I think we have to, again, keep in mind that some of the things we do, they work, but not for the reasons that they think that we think they work. And uh, in terms of the gait stuff, uh, there's evidence that if you, for example, increase step rate, um, you, then you decrease forces in the knee and then people get better. Yes, there's some studies on that. Um, so hopefully it's because we reduce the load of the knee that they get better, but we don't have any studies with a control group really that allows us to conclude that yes, it's the reason why it's working. Same with all this stuff about realigning your knees, you know, try to keep your knees pointing forward when you run. Uh, there's two studies on that. Um, unfortunately, no control group. You can't say that's the reason why it worked. Um, so I, I personally don't use it in the clinic. Uh, there's a, I, I think we need more evidence to be able to to uh, suggest that specifically. But, um, you know, again, the key point is we don't know why it works. And we have data that is not published yet, but hopefully it will be soon, in which we asked a bunch of runners with PFP to change the way they ran. But we tested increase your cadence. We tested also, you know, land on your forefoot. We tested uh, run softer, but we also tested 
decrease your cadence and land on your heel to increase forces in the legs. And we had quite a few people who reported less pain when they were decreasing their cadence or landing on their heel, which is counterintuitive. But maybe if we're just changing something in the system, people feel better. Maybe it puts their focus on something else. I have no idea, but that's what we observed uh, in that study. So basically in the paper, we talk about increasing step rate as being a safe intervention. That's for sure. Uh, and clinically it seems to work and it makes sense. So I use that one uh, personally. That's the one I use the most. Uh, run softer can be interesting to reduce the loading rate or the impact on your leg. Um, also a good intervention to use in those who run quite loud. Um, but other than that, personally, I, you know, I'm, I'm um, very cautious about changing other stuff in terms of gait. I don't tell someone to land on their forefoot when they run. I think it's a bit, uh, it's a huge shift, a huge uh, difference in loading, and it might put them more at risk of a new injury. Uh, and I don't know the realigning the knees thing. I will, um, I will give you numbers that are, are absolutely not evidence-based, but what I use for my patient. When a patient comes with a PFP and I want really give him the, how important is the load management, I tell him that the mechanical stress quantification, it's 80% of the job. And we have another 20% that can be linked with glutes, weakness, biomechanics, running shoes, etc. But 80% of the job is really the load management. And it's not evidence-based, but really it's give me like uh, something powerful with the patient to explain what, on what he must focus. I want that he focus on that because I know that it will become better and it will improve his pain and function if you follow my advice on the mechanical stress quantification a lot more than all the other stuff around. So what's something that a clinician can start doing today to improve their clinical practice, particularly in regard to patient education? Uh, I Seriously, I and we, we do that every time with the running clinic because we teach around the world uh, in many professionals. We teach the, the one-page tools, the mechanical stress quantification. Very simple. Uh, we made a little video to explain that, and it's really clinical tools. So when we speak about load management, it's a theoretical concept. But clinically, how can we teach that? Teach this? It's I have a sheet. I give that to the patient, and I explain, and um, and it's pretty simple for me. And I, we teach, uh, we educate uh, maybe uh, 10,000, maybe a little bit more certified running clinic around the world that use the mechanical stress quantification tools. And like clinically, like we were saying earlier, it will be different if, if it's acute versus persistent, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at like a quick tip to implement starting tomorrow, if it's an acute kind of PFP, ideally it's no increase in pain during running or after running. And even if it means you need to take a break, like two or three days off from running, go and do it. It's fine. Just, you know, give it some time to rest before you start reloading it. And if it's been a persistent PFP for a few weeks or a few months or sometimes a few years, 
then you can tolerate a bit of pain during your run, a little bit up to one hour after, but then it has to come back to your baseline level uh, within an hour after and no increase the day after. Um, and sometimes it's two out of 10. That's what we use in the, in the RCT that we did. Uh, and some people, it can be different than that. What are you guys really excited about new research or new ideas that are coming into the field of running medicine and running research? What are you excited about, Blaise? I'm not excited anymore with the shoes like I was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not excited about biomechanics like I was five years ago. Um, I'm not excited about the, the, the glute strengthening like I was three years ago. Uh, four years ago, uh, seriously, I think we, we really shift to load management and we need to go a little deeper on that and especially teach health professionals because they are stuck sometime at the, at the biomechanics and the shoes and uh, this stuff. Um, and for sure, the other thing is that we understand a little bit better how to orient and treat um, runners with uh, persistent pain. And for sure, the psychosocial part become like something we, we cannot deny. Um, like the optimism in the, 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 the pain self-efficacy, the optimism, the therapeutic alliance, for me, it's the, the new thing that we will explore more with the load management to have something a lot more clinical for, uh, to orient and to treat <clears throat> our patient. Yeah, I would echo that too, because um, I was mentioning the systematic review by De Oliveira Silva earlier about education for PFP. And I said that education was as efficient as an exercise program. It is true if delivered by a healthcare professional. And it seems like it's not as good if delivered over a leaflet, for example. Mm -hmm. So is it because the leaflets that were tested didn't have the right information in them? Or is it because of that therapeutic alliance of you're the healthcare professional, you're educating your patient, and then, you know, it, it just works better? We don't know that. Uh, but I think we need more studies uh, just investigating this approach. Uh, of treatment and then also having control groups and comparing different kinds of education, uh, whether it's over tele-rehab versus uh, in-person versus a leaflet and things like that, or a website even. And that's one of the things we teach when we when it, we teach to other health professionals how to improve our uh, therapeutic alliance, our capacity to meet a patient and to convinced that what you need to do must be done and um, and uh, for sure choosing tools that and choosing therapeutic that will be efficient with uh, high value uh, that increase pain self-efficacy and uh, and um, for sure it's for me it's what I, I do every day with the patient when I treat patients because we are before being scientists we are a clinician and uh, and I think that that's the bridge between clinician and science must be shorter because I think there is um, a lot of scientists that maybe don't understand pretty well the, the, the clinical stuff. And at the same time, when we find something and we can orient the clinician better with science, it takes so much time before the clinician integrate this concept in his clinics. And uh, like myth 
uh, on physiotherapy, physical therapy, and uh, are very uh, uh, hard. Like they, they keep going long time. I don't know how to say that. And they stick around. That's they for stick sure. Stick around, yeah. <laughs> Dogma. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I can maybe I can challenge the the listeners to do something. Ask your patient, what do you think caused the injury, and what do you think is going to help you? And sometimes we're. Uh, I'm I'm always surprised when I hear stuff sometimes from some patients, but I, I like to basically I'm taking their beliefs and I'm trying to process that with the current evidence and see kind of decide on which which route I'm taking. Am I going more on their side if they think, oh, I think you know a strengthening program will help me, then okay. I will for sure go that route and maybe I'll add not maybe, I will add some education on top of it, obviously, but maybe I won't focus on their gait. But if, you know, I ask them and they say, I think my running gait is off, then maybe I'll tell them just a quick tip to change something on their running gait that's very safe and educate them at the same time, but maybe I'll skip the exercise part. So maybe like, I think it's a, an interesting approach. Just, just ask your patients what they think. Then you've got their buy-in. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Thank you guys so much. Um, I really appreciate you guys joining me today. So many wonderful uh, tips and the figures are wonderful in this manuscript. And just a reminder to everybody that this clinical concept article, as well as all of JAT's content is available open access. So thank you again, Jean-Francois and Blaise for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Kara, for having us. That was great.